there's never been a book I've written where I haven't wanted to abandon it halfway through. So I thought maybe it was just that phase that all the authors I know have that as well, usually around 30, 40,000 words. The gyms were shut and I'd always use exercise to manage my mental health. And a lot of the experiences that I had lined up to help me with the book had been pulled away from me. So I was actually on my way into the Royal Opera House to have a backstage tour on the day that things started to shut down. So in between me leaving the house and me arriving in Covent Garden, which was only an hour, there had been some kind of press conference which told us that lockdown or something was imminent. I was always really, was always very disappointed with Cluedo as a child, because I always, this is, you could tell that I was going to grow up to be a crime writer, because I always felt, you know, how can this possibly turn on what cards you've got in your pack? There's no backstory here. There's no red herrings. You know, this is, <laughs> this is very, very simplistic, really rather poor. You know, that's what I was thinking when I was nine. Hello, welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And this week... It's a proper <gasps> tense thriller, right? <laughs> it is. And you are much more of a thriller fan in books in general, I think, than I am. Um, but I've really enjoyed the ones that we've spoken about on this podcast. Um, I'm thinking from series one as well. So it was it was great to be able to chat to Erin about her book, Watch Her Fall. Yeah, so Erin Kelly's our guest today. And, and the thing I wanted to tell you about this before you hear it is that this is the kind, it's, it's a claustrophobic thriller. It's set contemporaneously so you do feel like oh yeah i could i picture that ballet school i know that place i know that location but all the time it's sinister and so as you're reading it, you're thinking hmm. and then it makes you for me that it made me ultra suspicious so i was probably trying to find things <laughs> that weren't there because i thought no that he's not he's dodgy she's definitely dodgy yeah yeah no erin's writing is you know so clever i think because she she does that all the time but she's very smart with the clues that she'll put in and those hints of suspicion to make you question everything that you're reading and it's a thoroughly enjoyable process if it gets pretty dark in places this one but um but yeah really enjoyed it so here is natalie jameson to do the full introduction so i don't have to remember any of it Today's guest is Erin Kelly, and Watch Her Fall is Erin's eighth book, following the huge success of He Said, She Said, The Poison Tree, you might have seen that on telly as well, uh, We Know, You Know, which was also came out in Harsbacker's Stone Mothers. She did a novelization of Broadchurch as well, and she's just an all-round fab person as well who really makes me laugh when I follow her on social media, so I recommend you do that if you are not already. Um, hi Erin, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Can we start actually by talking about titles? Watch Her Fall, because you've had like a titles change on some of your previous books. Was it mm. always Watch Her Fall? What was the kind of the route on this one? So um, I've got a lot less precious about titles as my books have gone on. Um, and my the f titles of my first three books were actually taken from William Blake poems, um, The Poison Tree, The Sick Rose and The Burning Air. And my fourth book which was quite off-brand for me. It was a kind of cold case and it was about gangsters and gay culture. Um, I wanted to call it Ransom Soul and my editor at the time said that that was a bit too literary and abstract for what I was doing. And that was the first time I didn't get my way on a title. And we called it Ties That Bind. And it came from somebody in marketing, actually. And that was when I started to understand that a title is not 
part of the author's poetry. It's about marketing and it is a, a way to reach readers. And certainly the kind of fiction I write, which is commercial, book club, thriller fiction, um, you write to be read and you write to be stocked in the supermarkets if you're lucky and you write to you write to ensnare whatever's whatever words are keywords at um, on Amazon and you write to catch algorithms or you don't write to catch algorithms necessarily but that, that's what title and also a cover mm. need to do um, so when I was writing Watch Her Fall, I had a handful of working titles. And the way I approach it now is there's always a working title in every book. So it's about um, ballet. It's set in the ballet world. It's a thriller about two rival ballerinas. And one of the reference books I read was a memoir of a dancer called Martha Graham, mm -hmm. a very experimental dancer. And that's called Blood Memory. And I thought blood's always a good word for and memory is always memory is you you know always an ingredient in thrillers or in any books or and so my working title was Blood Memory, but I held it very lightly because I'd learned by now that actually when my editor says she doesn't like my title, it's nothing personal. It's just because they are thinking that title is not going to reach enough readers. So were you three and books in before you learned to trust the marketing department? I was four books. Well, I still, I still don't, I still don't like the ties that bind us tight. Actually, I don't right. think it's. I think it was a bit on the nose. It was the prologue showed somebody tied up in a cellar, and um, I don't think it sold the book particularly well. Um, and then with we know you know, which I still think of as Stone Mothers. Stone Mothers was a title that I was really attached to, and I fought to keep it. And I shouldn't have because it might be one of the reasons why it did well, but we didn't reach the same huge readership he said, she said did. And so for the paperback, the thinking was readers don't know it's you. So it's really, I mean, the, the longer I am a published author, the more I understand about the process and also the more I understand how difficult patterns are to pin down. And certainly, unless you're writing a series, how hard it is for readers to follow an, an author from one book to the next if things aren't very similarly done. But then if things are done very similarly twice in a row, maybe they don't have the same impact. It's, it's very confusing. Anyway, the long story short, the idea was that if we gave the paperback a title that recalled He Said, She Said, it being we know you know then that might hook in a few readers and it worked it did much better in paperback than it did um as a hardcover and watch her fall was a title that i came up with my editor i came up with with her and that was just throwing around keywords mm. i think she suggested the fall which i really like as a title but it's been done not mm. just with the tv crime drama but if you look online there's half a dozen maybe more books already called The Fall and quite a few of them are crying. Um, there's nothing to say that you can't reuse a title somebody else has used but I didn't think it was I thought it, it had crossed the line beyond relatable and hooky and readers like to themselves to something they've already seen and then just kind of blurred into generic and then, but Watch Her Fall was um, it just felt right as soon as we came up with it. Um, I think what you've got to do, and this is something I've only just learned, is to get some kind of narrative into a title. So he said, she said worked perfectly because 
not only was the novel told in two parts, a narrative that flipped like one girl between a, a wife and a husband, but it was about a, a rape trial. And when, when it's acquaintance sexual assault and consent is a matter of, for the as far as the jury are concerned, it's who do you believe in the witness box? Then they call that a he said, she said trial, literally her word against his, which is a bit different how often it goes his way rather than hers. But, and watch her fall gives you a picture and it's re a really difficult thing to do with the title. There is narrative in there. It's it's inviting the reader, you know, you can watch her fall. Pro readers love pronouns. They are drawn to pronouns. Um, it's so fascinating, and, like how much has to go into literally like three words. And as you say, literally three just to words, try and disassociate yeah. that you want people, you've just got to hook them in. So however you hook them in is... Yeah it's not irrelevant but that's it doesn't necessarily relate to what they might then read but you it's, you've kind of lost the game as you say unless you don't get them to read it in the first place yeah and these are they're considerations that I don't know if these would be made if I were writing more literary fiction and my aim was to get on the long lists rather than to shift copies in bulk what was the idea <laughs> you want both um, obviously <laughs> Yeah, but I, I definitely, you know, you can, there are certain titles that seem quite obscure and breakthrough anyway. But yeah, it's just, I think you're, you're taking a chance on so many things every time you send a book out into the world that I now understand your title needs to give your book every chance. Mm. Even if sometimes it feels a bit too obvious or generic, it almost doesn't matter. I think about Lisa Jewell, whose titles are super accessible and always suggest something. So I've just finished her latest, which is called The Night She Disappeared. There's another one called And Then She Was Gone and The Family Upstairs. And they, sometimes they relate to the story, but often they don't really suggest what the story's about, but they invite the reader in enough. Or the, the, the hunting party or the guest yeah. list, Lucy Foley's books. Mm. They, they do just enough work for the reader to make them want to find out what the book is about. And it's a really fine art. And of course, the other problem is that once you get the perfect title, you find that somebody else has already had it. <laughs> with this title, you've managed to do both, haven't you? Because you have made a CWA long list with this already, haven't you? Yes, The Dagger in the Library. I'm never quite sure. So there's so many. Um, I think The Dagger in the Library is a career award rather than a, a, a the actual book being long listed. Or is it voted by library users? Or I mean, I'm very delighted and thrilled either way but I believe it's it's more of a body of work award rather than one particular I think it's just safe to avoid libraries until they've judged it do you know what I mean just in case they get the wrong <laughs> end of the stick we have started playing Cluedo recently actually with the kids <laughs> in lockdown have you <laughs> yeah, yeah Cluedo is a great game uh my seven-year-old keeps just like he gets too excited it's like I'm gonna guess I'm going for it you're like you're, you're gonna lose you're so gonna lose and each time he then takes it out of the middle it's like oh. I was always really I was always very disappointed with Cluedo as a child because I always this is you could tell that I was going to grow up to be a crime writer um because I always felt you know this is just how can this possibly turn on what cards you've got in your pack there's no backstory here there's no red herrings you know this is <laughs> this is very very simplistic really rather poor you know that's what I was thinking when I was nine and yeah, my sister was the um biggest cheat going in any board game so uh, you were always dicing with 
anyway when you played with her it's so funny so there are still like I, I don't mention them but there are grudges that are still held over particular board game <laughs> matches so it brings out the best and worst in people um but just yeah. on that actually what you were saying what what were you like as a reader as a kid did you read a lot what were you reading because presumably crime isn't something you necessarily come to maybe until a little bit later on um well I know there was a, a series of Enid Brighton books called The Five Find-Outers, and they were children's mysteries. Mm. It, they were a, a bit like the famous five, and that there were five of them, and they, you know, had some really relaxed parenting and would often creep around abandoned mansions in the nighttime. And they followed, actually, quite classic mystery setups. You know, here is the question clue, clue, red herring, red herring, clue, clue, reveal, justice. Um, and I tried to revisit them with my own kids who refused to engage with Enid Blythe. I was surprised by how wordy and boring they are, but I devoured them yeah. when I was little. So I liked, I read those a lot and then really remember there being much in the way of bridge fiction when I was a kid. You know, I kind of went from Enid Blyton and Judy Bloom and Paula Danziger to Agatha Christie. So when I was about 12 or 13, I discovered Agatha Christie, fought through all of those. And then, then there was a diversion via Virginia Andrews and Stephen King. And then it was Ruth Rendell. And the great thing about discovering really established crime writers is that they've got such huge back catalogues that you can, you know, that it can take you a year to get through one novelist. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I used to go to Hornchurch Library every week and read five books a week and read them all. And that was what I did with my childhood. And um, so my parents were some, occasionally quite despairing that when everybody else was out doing wheelies in the street, I was you know, in bed with the <laughs> curtains closed. But, you know, I turned it into a career. So it was actually, you know, those 10,000 hours that you're supposed to put in uh, to get good at something. That's what I was unwittingly doing, I think, with my childhood. I didn't have any other skills. Do you know? Couldn't um, couldn't play a sport or I would do much with an instrument, but I could tell you all about books. I've just looked up the five finder outers because I was familiar with the famous five, but not the five finder outers. I think I might have struck upon why your children found them a bit dull. There's the mystery of the disappearing cat, the mystery of the pantomime cat. I can't remember them, but you've got to once you get to the mystery of Tally Ho Cottage. That's a really good one. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's further. Down I mean, with the mystery of Tally Ho Cottage involves finding a couple who are kind of playing a long con, and it's all about theatrical disguises. I mean, the reveal is very Scooby Doo, and if it weren't for you, pesky kids. But um, yeah, so don't, <laughs> don't write the whole series off until you've until you've uh, read Tally Ho Cottage. <laughs> I won't, because you know there's two seasons plus of Scooby Doo, pesky kids, and I love all of them. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you about um, as I was reading this, I thought because we've already established this this book is set in the world of ballet. Um, I wondered if it could be set in another world or was it integral to, to but I know the Swan Lake part becomes integral to the story, but the premise of what you're doing here, would it have been, could it have been in another, say in a, even in another sporting world or in another um, office world, a competitive world? Um, so the plot mechanics, because without giving too much away, it specifically needs to exist in a world where, injury is the end of everything so yes it could have existed within another sport but it would have to so it couldn't possibly well I don't know you know I don't know enough about sport to know how team sports work 
possibly something like gymnastics, but what is more important almost than the ballet world? It needs to be a very closed world that not many people know about. And it needs to be a world where you sacrifice your youth, essentially, in pursuit of your passion. Mm. And something like what is unusual about ballet, um, and it's often the case gymnastics as well and I don't think it's a coincidence but that both of those fields are dominated still in many places by Russian methodology and philosophy and training is that you have the ballet master or the gymnastics coach is God and is the absolute and everybody is at the mercy of and the whim of one person so it's a dictatorship not a democracy and that kind of closed off claustrophobic world where nobody questions the person in charge I think need it needs to be and for me I couldn't have written it about anything other than ballet because I needed to pour in a lot of inspiration and I don't care enough about anything else to you know I liked ballet beforehand so it was no hardship whatsoever to sit through a dozen versions of Swan Lake and read all the ballet biographies and watch the movies and listen to the podcasts and spend hours on YouTube what I love about writing standalone thrillers rather than series fiction, whether the detective or the professional comes back time and again, is that I get a fresh start with every book. And actually, I suppose you do. I suppose each crime when you're writing series fiction is set in a slightly different world anyway. But I get to immerse myself in something with every novel. And it's always something that I'm mildly interested in and I want to do a deep dive into. Mm. So with He Said, She Said, I was always interested in Eclipse Chases and the book is set against that world and the backdrop of total solar eclipses. With this one, it was ballet and it became indivisible from the plot. I mean, everything about it, the symbolism, the darkness and the light and the feathers. Um, and there's a kind of glamour to ballet as well that is quite seductive. difference between what we, what you see on stage where they look, you know, they sort of look like wisps of silk. Mm. And then what you see off stage, which is kind of bleeding toes and aching muscles and sweat and ice baths and you can't ever go out and get hammered the night before a show. You know, there's a really rigid way of living life. And that is kind of what you're trying to do with a thriller as well. If you're, that, or that it certainly is the process of writing a thriller. You hope that the result will be something very polished that's effortless for the reader, but there's a lot of plotting and planning that goes on behind the surface. And it's certainly not, I've never written a book that starts on day one and ends on day 20 of an investigation, for example. There's always some kind of flashback or dual narrative. I enjoy that complication when I'm working. I don't know if I'd be able to do that thing where you start with the body and work out who done it. The insights you give us is... Um from the ballet world, were those gleaned through research or through personal experience? I mean, there's one I want to share with us. There's no spoiler in this, but one of the characters you write, it was a point of pride for her that at the height of her career, she hadn't menstruated for five years. And my joy at the deck. <laughs> um, yeah, that is, I hasten to add, an older ballerina. And these days you would be looked after. I mean, sports science now means that dancers can achieve what would in the olden days have been done on, I don't know, amphetamine and starvation. Uh, they can they, they now achieve it through physiotherapy and nutrition. So it's not great. So no, I had a little idea. I did dance when I was a child. 
But I think by the time I was eight, it was obvious to everybody that I was more of an audience person than an onstage person when it came to ballet. But a lot of my friends carried on dancing and they took it quite seriously. So I was around that world. I used to go and see them dance through their teenage years. And one by one, they all fell off. It was like the Hunger Games. You know, I think one girl I knew did go on to one of the big ballet schools. Uh, but I didn't know her very well but you'd go away in the summer holidays and they'd come back and someone would have giant hips or they'd have shot up all of a sudden in, in, they were an incredibly talented dancer but these new hips and thighs would affect their centre of gravity and they wouldn't it's not just about looking a certain way although that is a thing in ballet much more so than in contemporary dance it's not just that you don't look like a little jewelry box twirly dolly on stage but it you know bodily proportion does affect the moves that you need to do in ballet um if you're too tall then there is an ideal differentiation in height between the male dancer and his partner if you're super tall then that rules you out which just seems shockingly unfair so i what i did have an understanding of was that you can want this thing and you can devote your entire childhood to it and doesn't mean anything you know it's it's kind of dumb luck and genetics really at the end of the day or you might never achieve proper turnout which is when you it's basically being able to unhinge your hips so if you think of a gate two gates opening from a post so that the feet point outwards rather than forwards I mean some dancers can even get their feet to almost point behind some people are just never going to get there just because of the shape of their skeleton and the alignment of their muscles so I knew about these things a little bit but I now know about them in much more detail. Was there anything in particular that you, because I know you spoke to various people in this world as well, that kind of really stayed with you, that kind of one of those stories you're like, really? That's one I've got to work in. Um, No, because most of uh, the dancers I actually spoke to, they were responding to my questions rather than me interviewing them. I got most of my inspiration from memoir. Um, And actually it's, it's the psychology of the dancers that I found more interesting mm. than the bodily stuff that they go through. Because what they all go through is the same. You know, they all ha- they all hurt in the same places. I'm, I'm talking now about ballerinas who've made it to professional level. And they all have to have similar routines and they all take the same class every day. But what I was really fascinated by was the mindset. And the ballerinas in my book don't have a company psychologist. The ballet master is a very old-fashioned Russian who was born under Stalin and it's my way or the highway and needing to talk about your feelings isn't going to help you access what you need to perform. You just need to bend to my will. And I was really interested, to, and that's why everybody in my book is basically on the edge of a nervous breakdown, you know, but, and that, that's what you need in it, really. You want everybody to be sort of barely clinging on to their sanity and functionality because if everything was going brilliantly and they had a company psychologist then none of the stuff in my story would be able to happen it's all about secrets and denial but yeah what I was really interested in then was something I couldn't put in the fact that their psychologists and their physiotherapists work with them then really so I spoke to dancers at the Scottish Ballet and the Northern Ballet and the Royal Ballet and they, they are so super holistic and you can't do the physio without having the psychology because a psychologist will teach you how to recognize when it's pain of overwork 
and when it's pain of injury and you mustn't let your ego or your ambition get in the way mm. and there are visualization tricks that they do before they go on stage to calm themselves and it is but psychologically as a ballerina you need it's a really contradictory existence because you need to be physically incredibly tough and incredibly fit I mean I'm sure some of these little nine stone women could lift me over their heads yeah because they're so incredibly dense in terms of muscularity and then you're an actor as well so you've got to be able to go on stage and portray somebody like the white swan in swan lake or sleeping beauty or julia or clara in the nutcracker and you've got to be able to act and be vulnerable and so it's a really interesting psychological mix that's full of contradictions yeah yeah it is it's fascinating and I'm kind of interested in how you were saying that obviously there's something in each of your books where you're really genuinely fascinated by that world. So you want to spend time in it like ballet or the solar eclipses. Um, but how do you, how do you find it when you're writing such dark material? A lot of the time, does that seep into you while you're doing it? Because obviously you, you know, you've got a family and everything. Can you just kind of shut it off at the end of the day or does it kind of linger? Are there any signs that you kind of watch out for when you're not quite, um shutting it away maybe um it doesn't bother me in the slightest <laughs> I don't know what that means I do sometimes um get upset during the research phase mm. when I am laying down the information so uh I mean I know it's fiction and I'm in control of all of it on a good day at the desk so there's the kind of voice in the back of my head always telling me I've got a duty of care to victims of trauma to take this seriously and to not trivialize it. And I hope that I don't do that. But no, I don't, you know, I can really happily write a brutal murder and then take my kids to the park. And I find it very easy to compartmentalize. What I don't find it easy to do is to switch off the plotting. So I'll often be having a conversation with someone in my family and I'll realize that I haven't engaged for a good three or four minutes and they're just looking at me. My husband will sometimes say, you're not even here, are you? So that, it's the mechanics of storytelling that is more likely to invade me. But, you know, when um, I did find, when I was researching, he said, she said, and the, the fact of how the criminal justice system is stacked against rape victims, I found that the research and the reading very upsetting. I suppose, if anything, I harnessed that and thought, right, let's, let's put this in a book and let's show how unfair this is and mm. let's show how a young white man with money and a posh voice will always be heard over a chaotic young woman from a less privileged background with a history of mental illness and but I had all the feelings when I was in the research phase and the writing phase I don't get emotional about. Well you'll be pleased to know that somebody who else told us that is someone you've already referenced today Lisa Jewell told us the exact same thing yeah so you're in good company is what I'm saying. <laughs> Do you, do you mind me asking you about um, coming to ballet yourself then? Because I'm, I read a piece that you authored for the Daily Mail where you talked about your own experience of, of doing ballet classes at home, online, during lockdown one, which seems forever ago now that we're in lockdown three or whatever it is. But talk us through that. Um, yeah, so I didn't cope particularly well at all with the first lockdown and uh, my mental health took a severe beating. Well, like for all of us. I mean, I was lucky in that I had the skills in working from home was no shift to me, but I, you know, there was no new skill set required there, but I wasn't a primary school teacher. I had also been finding Watch Her Fall, a really difficult book to write long before lockdown. 
and I haven't found any of my books easy but Watch Her Fall was I mean it's it is the most ambitious twist I've ever written but I have I have written books as hard and as complicated as that before and it just wasn't coming I would rewrite the same scenes over and over again and rework chapters that I knew weren't going to make it into the book and it was just like hacking through a jungle every day and so something hadn't been right for a while and then lockdown forced that to a head so for, when I was typing my words you know sometimes I'd look at a sentence I'd just written and you know when you see a transcript of something Donald Trump said on a podium and it doesn't make any sense that's what my work <laughs> looked like and even when I haven't been in control of my plots I've always made pretty sentences that's one thing that I've never had any doubt in and I I wasn't in control of any of it and I'd I was already behind schedule and I was already worried. Uh, I didn't think it was a mental health issue. I thought it was burnout or um, there's never been a book I've written where I haven't wanted to abandon it halfway through. So I thought maybe it was just that phase that all the authors I know have that as well. Usually around 30, 40,000 words. Mm. We decide that actually we just want to go and open a tea shop somewhere on the South Coast and... <laughs> that this writing books lark is not as much fun as it's cracked up to be so it just felt like an extremely protracted version of that phase um and then lockdown forced that to a head with my children at home and I was lucky that you know we didn't lose any jobs and we didn't lose any loved ones but even within the context of that privilege it was just horrible wasn't it those first few yeah. days it was terrifying we didn't know what was going to happen we didn't know how safe it was to go to the supermarket. The news was just, you know, the numbers were staggering and I knew lots of people who were grieving or who were very ill. And the combination of that and the stress of looking after children and being on deadline just took me over the edge. And I went to see the GP who diagnosed depression and, um, and within a few, within about a week of, going on antidepressant I was back to something approaching functionality and when when she said I think you sound depressed I was like no I'm not depressed I'm just like clinically stupid that's how I would describe it you know I couldn't find anything all the only appointments I had on zoom were on zoom and I couldn't make them and I kept messing up my children's work and I couldn't um all of the interfaces for downloading their homework I couldn't operate and I'm not you know I'm not a tech bro, but equally, I'm not a complete Luddite and all of these basic things weren't working. So the first stage was medication and I and I found talking therapy helps as well. But the gyms were shut and I'd always use exercise to manage my mental health. And also a lot of the experiences that I had lined up to help me with the book had been pulled away from me. So I was actually on my way into the Royal Opera House to have a backstage tour on the day that things started to shut down so in between me leaving the house and me arriving in Covent Garden which was only an hour there had been some kind of press conference which told us that lockdown or something was imminent mm. and so it was the middle of March and I, I arrived to say we can't let you back the infection risk which was understandable but also disappointing and I had also been due to travel to other ballet companies to sit in on rehearsals and watch how they workshop and and the details that you pick up, I always try and do as much field research as I can. And no matter how many books you read, you will always pick up something when you're watching people work. You know, you'll, you'll pick up a turn of phrase that will make it into the book, that will give it authenticity. 
or you'll see a look pass between two people who don't know they're being observed. Mm -hmm. And with all that missed, I started watching ballet classes online just to, I mean, there's a scene in the book, dancers start every day with company class, which is when they're doing all their plies and they're bending and they're stretching. And there's loads of stuff on YouTube. I started watching those every day to get an idea so that my ballet mistress in the book would be saying the right things to the dancers, you know, plie, tendu, and back and forth. Mm. And I wanted to make sure that was right. And I started finding watching them really calming. And then I thought, well, why don't I give it a go? Because um, the internet being what it is, I was getting adverts. Having watched all these ballet classes, I was getting spammed with adverts saying adult ballet online in the privacy of your own home. So I did, I gave it a go and I started doing it every morning. And that routine, funnily enough, brought me closer to the book as well as exercise, doing what it always does and getting the endorphins going and all of that. The first class I started was um, called Ballet for the Mature Body. <laughs> and it was a senior's class. And I thought, well, I'm so rusty. I'm 44 and I'm fit. I, I go to the gym and I lift weights, but I haven't done this since I was eight. And it was, it was not easy. I mean, you know, I took a couple of classes and then when I went on to a kind of intermediate class it's really hard work because it's not about lifting weights where you kind of get all your tension out and you can yell or going for a long run where you can blast your music and get away from tension it's the opposite of that it's all about control mm -hmm. so you've got to bend down really slowly and it's harder to bend down really slowly bearing only body weight than it is to squat holding 40 kilos on a barbell it sounds really um a bit wanky but honestly when I knew that I was aching in the same places that my dancers did uh, it made me conscious of my body in a way that they must feel all the time and it was and it was also the routine of it was just meant that I was kind of living and breathing ballet as much as I could uh, unfortunately I was, I was also sim simultaneously trying to live and breathe the key stage to <laughs> national curriculum <laughs> isn't um, it great yeah. <laughs> so much fun so, much, so fun. much fun the part whole model of division bring it home um yeah so <laughs> that was what that was what ballet did for me it it was a kind of a bit like meditation and just a way that I started to claw my way back into a book that I thought was using and do you mind me just asking and tell me to mind my own business if it's too much but um one of the key conversations I've had constantly on the radio around mental health and around medication is a fear of people coming off the medication the fear that they can't are you still um yeah, I'm still taking it and um yeah I will cross that bridge when I come to it I don't think I'm in a place to stop yet and it's I'm, a, I'm on the lowest dose of the most gentle medication well my experience of it has been very subtle so um yeah we will cross that bridge when we come to it but from talking to my GP there is the strong feeling that now even though things look to be getting back to normal they're really not mm. and that now isn't the uh isn't the time yeah I mean sort of not to go too off topic but similarly it's kind of Likewise, I feel very fortunate that myself and my husband, we were able to work throughout this year um, and didn't lose our jobs, but we're just like done. Like this yeah. idea of like everything opening up and kind of going out to see people, we're shattered and like mm. my resilience is same zero. <laughs> well, I've had the luck over Easter. Um, we did start going and doing stuff again. So mm. we, when I say we started doing stuff, we went for walks with people. 
<laughs> as opposed to going for walks with each other. Um, but even the logistics of organising, you know, one kid needs to be dropped off in this garden and the other kid needs to be dropped off in another garden. I hadn't had to do that juggling for a long, long time. And then this was all happening during my publication, which, so everything had to be arranged around my various Zooming commitments and the online book clubs and phone calls and radio, um, whatever. I mean, I never had great diary skills anyway, but they've absolutely vanished. <laughs> and there's this whole side to life that I have to learn again. And I, yeah, it's been overwhelming. The, the school run routine, I love having that back, but the additional remembering and planning mm. that has to go into it is, is going to take some getting used to again. And I have no, like you, I have no energy left socialize my friday coffee in the park after school is as much as i can handle mm -hmm. for a good long while or you know driving to meet a friend in the park that will do yeah that will really that will really be enough. do you find it's um is it seeping into your what you're currently writing because also what i've found is that i've barely seen anybody for the past year anyway but then when i do i've lost not that I don't think I was that good at it anyway, but I kind of small talk seems so irrelevant now. So you either go really in on how are you? Oh, like I've had this awful thing or it's it's all quite intense and serious. And you're sort of you there's kind of I feel like there's a layer that's gone of just, you know, kind of skirting around things or just sort of easing in gently. It's just direct and nope, this is how it is. And it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> you see I've always I've always found small talk quite excruciating anyway and I'm always the first person to barge in with something inappropriately intimate so it suits me actually <laughs> now we've all I think it's an iceberg everyone's finally on my level <laughs> so that, that I don't mind so much yeah yeah the book I'm that. writing now though to answer that question it is set in the summer that we're just coming into so it's set in summer 21 and I am I'm not ready to write a book that's set in the thick of it, although I'm sure I will. So I'm writing a book that's set, the action takes place over maybe three or four weeks, but there's lots of flashbacks, the 90s and the 70s. And it's set on Hampstead Heath in the summer. And that is as normal as I can make it because it's an open space mm -hmm. where people can socialise a bit more freely, but there will be, there will be acknowledgements that we're all in a new place now. And hopefully, because the action is contained, I deliver the book in September, I think. So if anything else goes to shit in the, <laughs> in the meantime, then um, I'll be able to kind of work that into the plot. But I'm hoping that there's a kind of bubble of, not normal, but, you know, we had, we had maybe eight weeks, didn't we, in the summer, where we could at least go to a beer garden with friends and restrictions were eased. So. You speak for yourself. I'm living in Manchester. We had two weeks of that, I think, and then. That oh was, gosh, did uh, you? Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm overthinking. And whatever that time length was, I only went out once. The the um, kind of we had a really good six to eight week weather period, which made the first lockdown a little bit more palatable. Didn't mm. it? We spent a lot of time in the front garden. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't six weeks then. I know that whatever. No, it was down south. It was. It was just that was in it? Manchester. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was just in Manchester in the northwest had a really high R rate, and so they locked it down a lot ahead of the south. Ouch. Yeah, big ouch, with a, a, a then four-year-old and a then one-and-a-half-year-old. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, it was. It was. People are really... I think just generally, even without the kids, people here where I'm 
talking to you from now that are really feeling it and kind of i'm surprised there hasn't been more madness if i'm honest with you with the pub beer gardens opening up i thought there'd be some more proper full-on sessions but people are very strained yeah i thought that we'd have kind of dispatches from the front line of a and e mm. and that doesn't seem to have happened yet but that might be certainly in my part of london and i live right on the edge of it i live in barnet in north london we aren't blessed with multiple beer gardens so it might just be that there isn't the capacity in these little I mean it's quite depressing you know sort of seeing people try to turn whetstone high road into the Champs-Élysées with a bit of patio furniture <laughs> people are kind of you know sort of trying to enjoy their shawarma while the traffic lights go and you know they're kind of honking in carbon monoxide but um that's so true. Yeah, so maybe there. I, I think when when we go up another level, that might be. Or, or also, you know, people are still frightened. People are still cautious. Yeah. Mm. And I haven't been vaccinated yet. I'm 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 three months away from my forty fifth birthday. I never wanted to be older until now. Um, <laughs> and you know, my friends and I are still not doing anything that isn't in a park. Mm. Maybe once we're all double vaxxed, it will be just like a kind of back in alien orgy everywhere who knows well i have to I have to uh, look back in october and see what actually happened in the summer of 21 won't we yeah do a swift rewrite of that book <laughs> <laughs> and how has your writing routine changed or not um do you have to have uh, a quiet room with no interruptions for like a period of time or can you just sort of dip in and out wherever you are so uh it depends where i am in the book where I am at the moment is I'm still plotting and that's when I need to be completely uninterrupted. When I am, when I've got the plot there, which is usually about 50, 60,000 words. So my first draft is very messy. I mean, if, if, an, if somebody read it, they would glean the plot, but the sentences are awful and there's loads of X's and I keep writing in the margin, we need to come back and fix we, who is we? Me and my army of elf helpers with their typewriters. The writing elves who come out at night. I wish they did, I wish they did. Um, And then I do need to be completely uninterrupted, but when I am polishing, I can be, uh, I I can do an hour and then walk away. And that's actually a much healthier way to do it because then I can fit it in around the kids. Um, But before the pandemic, my lockdown was I write when they're at school and no one's allowed to talk to me in that time. And I locked down social media and that's all blurred. I mean, this time last year, I was getting up at five to write. And I used to see you sometimes on Twitter, Natalie, when we were both supposed to be writing and neither of us were. (laughs) Hashtag write early. (laughs) I'm writing, I'm not really. I'm just on Twitter (laughs) trying to write. Yeah, so I am... I did a lot of that and do you I mind sorry if, just on that do you mind me asking yeah. you both can I ask you both then um because I'm not doing that and not writing at all at the moment why are if you get up at five which is so arduous which I have done for breakfast shows it's so awful and painful to the body and mind why do you not just switch all your social off and go right this is my mission I've got up at five I'm going to write um do you want to take that first area and then Natalie give us your thoughts well in my case it's because I've got no willpower okay. um but I genuinely know that in the hours between 5 and 7.30, nobody needs me. There isn't going to be an email. There isn't, you know, no one apart from Natalie is going to be on Twitter. Um, <laughs> there is just, and also it's it's not, it's not just that. There is, a, my brain is so clean in the morning when I haven't had to do anything. 
but sit down and write that I can fall into the story and lose track of time. And actually I will find that if anything, I'm having to tear myself away from the computer. And by the time I've dealt with, you know, shoes and porridge and, and reading journals and mm. all of that stuff that requires the kids, or even by the time I, you know, just looked at Twitter to see if anything's happened and then it's, two hours later and I'm still standing in the kitchen with a cold tea <laughs> next to me yeah there's just a there's just a kind of not just the fact that circumstances suit me writing then but my brain hasn't got any clutter in it mm. it's been reset in the night but then you know that's I am programmed to be a morning person I get up early even when I don't have to I can't lie in I wish I could and I've got other friends whose routine is to faff all day then they get the laptop out at eight o'clock and that's when they start and that's when their brain is engaged so I think you've just got to know what works for you mm. so mine is some of that I think I when I get up early to do writing I like to log on to Twitter it's just to kind of to say hi <laughs> to like know that there are other people out there and it's not just you doing this weird solitary thing I quite like that kind of check-in um but I am more of a night owl than a morning person. So it was really hard for me to get out of bed and do it. But for two things, I like it that like you, Erin, I'm less likely to be interrupted by anybody and just like people moving around and stuff. My, my husband, he'll hate me saying this, but he's kind of like a classic for coming into a room to get one thing, then coming back 30 seconds later because he forgot something else. And then again, I'm like, okay, just like, just get it and go. Um, so I quite like that. I can, there's a corner upstairs that I'll, sort of it's just outside one of the kids bedrooms actually where I'll kind of sit there and try and do some writing early but one of the main reasons why I wanted to do that as well is because with my day job so my paid work um I was getting frustrated that I was then so tired by the evening that even though I was enjoying the work I was doing I would it would be much easier to shift writing and say like I'm too tired I can't do it now and I quite like the idea that I've already done that bit for me I really wanted to do and get that done first thing so then I can kind of go into work going well it's okay because yeah I've got a super busy day at work but I've already done like a good couple of hours of writing and I'm happy with that very good very good <laughs> I kind of feel that was really interesting insight into how you both and no one does it the same as you said but I just you know if I was getting up at 5am to want to do something I think I'd have to I would have to switch everything off and just I like the idea that your brain's clean Erin because that is really mm. true you know yeah. you the worst thing I can do is wake up and turn the phone on because all of a sudden it's on. I have to stop myself doing it. And actually that was another, I've really got to retrain my habits because certainly in the first lockdown, I had this masochistic obsession with the news like we all did, you know, watching the briefing every day, getting angry, getting sad, getting cross. And I would, I would check in just to, you know, just check in on the phone just to check that, everybody in my family was okay and nobody had been blue lighted off to hospital in the night you know because uh, this thing comes at you very very quickly and so I did get into the habit of looking at my phone first thing and I've got to nip that in the bud because it's not good for me mm. yeah um, I'm realizing we this often happens because we get so stuck into enjoying our conversation that we then forget to get you to read something so <laughs> let's do it before we have to wrap things up um would you like to read us a few paragraphs from watch her fall so if people haven't read it yet they can get a sense of what to expect sure this is from chapter one and our lead character ava 
who is the principal ballerina in the London Russian Company and also the daughter of the company director, has heard two junior ballerinas gossiping about her. One word from Ava, one look and their careers would be over. She was the prima ballerina and her father's heir, but the sick need to know what came next held her still. She's nearly 30, said one. As if she needs to worry, she'll go on forever. Silhouettes retreated and a door squeaked on its hinges. Funny, none of us go on forever. The door banged closed and the girls were gone. Ava would never know who they were, but it hardly mattered. They all thought the same way. They thought it was easy once you were at the top. They couldn't understand that to dance at her level did not exempt you from paranoia. It stitched it to your heels as tightly as your shadow. Love it. So good. It's, I, yeah, it kind of makes me want to read it again. I think that's the thing with a really good thriller as well, because I know we don't want to blow the twist and congratulations on carrying that off so seamlessly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I always want to go back now and read and see if I can spot some of those clues that I didn't spot the first time. I do that all the time with books. Do you? And that's how I, yeah, when I was starting out, that's how I learned to be a writer in a way. I would go back and I would really forensically examine books especially since especially when you think about twists which are about misdirection and lulling your reader into believing something but never lying to them so you've got to play fair Mm. and to do that you have to get every you know you have to look at every single word and sometimes a whole book can hang on one really carefully worded sentence that straddles that line between making the reader think something without actually telling them it. So you've got to kind of exploit their assumptions. So when I am really impressed by a book, I will always go back and I will look at the moment and I think, aha, that's where I made my mind up about something. And that's how the writer achieved it. Yeah. I do reread all the time. Is there a book that you've reread the most? A recent book, maybe not. But when I was starting out, I used to go over the old Barbara Vines a lot. So I do lots of creative writing, teaching and... I used, I've read Gone Girl quite a few times just mm-hmm. because when you are teaching big audiences, it's a good idea to use a book that everyone's read. Mm-hmm. So I've, I think I must have read Gone Girl three or four times, once for fun, once for fun again, and then the next couple of times to um, kind of take it apart and pull out passages for students to read and think about mm. and talk about pace and midpoint and all that other stuff that is helpful to know but is no substitute actually for just reading the books very true I don't want to kind of take up too much more of your time I know that Watch Her Fall in particular would be a a challenging one to adapt but is there anything you can tell us about other film or tv adaptations that might be in the works for anything else um there are so superstitiously and I'm touching wood now there are a couple of irons in the fire but all of my books, bar one, have been optioned at some stage and they go in into option and they come out. And honestly, until you are there on set on day one, just believe nothing and trust <laughs> no one. So there's, there is something with one of the books that I'm really hoping happens. And I would actually, I've got some ideas about how to bring Watcher Fall mm. to the screen. And I've got an agent who's talking to some people about that. But yeah. Stuff is happening, but I'm worried that if I say it, it won't. Obviously. Yeah. 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 You don't want to jinx it. But I mean, Netflix, surely, you know? (laughs) I like to think so. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's that's, that's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah. (laughs) 
sure. we need to get some recommendations mm. from you, don't we, for for other books? I mean, you've already mentioned Gone Girl, but is there stuff last I don't know twelve months or whatever that you you know you would recommend us to go to? I mean, if you like my books, then I suppose you would also really enjoy, and you have probably already read anyway. Lisa Jewell and Gillian McAllister are both really good psychological writers, really beautiful writers at the sentence level, but their their books are about characters and relationships that are really they just feel very real and alive so there's a lot I think I'm at but if there's an area of my work that I think needs improving it is to root it a bit more in realism and be a bit less gothic so I read their work and really enjoy that they bring that to the genre I can tell you what so what I tend to do is listen to a lot of books now I listen to a lot of non-fiction and memoir because that doesn't feel like work whereas reading books in my own genre absolutely does feel like work now I'm listening to Richard Cole's memoir about his Mm. husband's death and Uh, that's really a really beautifully written and tender book yeah that's on my list I, I haven't listened to or read that one as well but I'd love that as well um I was going to mention earlier as well I know I don't think Phil's read it yet, but um, The Secret History, Donna Tartt's book, is one that I probably read every couple of years. And when I first started writing, I was like, I'm totally going to really write like Donna Tartt. <laughs> and it turns out I can't. So. Well, you could you could say that not even Donna Tartt could do The Secret History again. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. But Secret History is the origin story of so many psychological thriller writers. And there are, um, you should talk to the author Mark Edwards about this because he is, I think he reads it once a year and me and him and a few other crime writers often have really geeky conversations at literary festivals about the secret history and try and outquote each other. Amazing. I look forward to joining in on one of those one day in person soon. <laughs> it's so good. I always feel like that opening line. So good. Well, the brilliant thing about The Secret History is it shows you what psychological thrillers do that not all crime fiction can do. So it starts at the beginning and it tells you, it tells you which character's going to die and almost how they do it. And Mm -hmm. it lets you know that all of the other characters you're going to meet are complicit in it. And you would think, well, how do you then create suspense? And yet you do. Finding the lead up to it is so incredibly tense because you know what's going to happen. Not because you don't. And then the, the second half of the book is the fallout. And it is, I mean, it is a beautiful book. It is literary and its references are ancient Greece and, and you know, there's poetry in it and all of that stuff. But it is also just a cracking thriller as well. Mm-hmm. It is. Which is why people love it so much. Yeah, it's great. Oh, Erin, it's been such, genuinely such fun hanging out yeah, with you for this really hour. Has. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. And I really look forward to reading what happens in summer 2021. Better finish it, haven't I? <laughs> and also, just to say, for those of you uh, listening in black and white, th- th- those are amazing portraits behind you of when you were doing ballet and Swan Lake yourself. That you Thank you, yeah. yes. They are absolutely pictures of me and not at all a cut-up programme from a Swan Lake performed by the Royal Ballet. <laughs> Real photos of me, taken on an iPhone and then printed off at the local print shop. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so just to be clear, those are not postcards of Erin that she was talking about. They were just gorgeous uh, pieces of art that she had collated as part of her research for this. So it was Erin Kelly in the office with the postcards. <laughs> yeah, not quite. I have been playing quite a lot of Cluedo lately, actually, with the kids. I love Cluedo, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah. I could never fathom it as a child. It always seemed to go on for ages in our house. Mm. And I'm not sure like we ever identified the murder or, do you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I remember playing it for 45 minutes and then thinking, hang on, we've discarded the lead pipe. And it turns out it was the, lead, oh, we must yeah. have gone wrong somewhere. Is that yeah. easy to, to do on Cluedo? Or was I just rubbish at it? No, I, th- I think that does happen. I think the trick is that me and James, my husband, uh, we have slipped into the territory of is when you're playing Cluedo, you put in your own red herrings. So you'll say, oh, ah. I think it was this. I think I think it was the revolver in the study and it was Miss Scarlet. But you've got one of those things or two of those things even. So you're then trying to locate the other ones around the table. Yeah, Take I'm it not- seriously. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the problem is that then you kind of out trick yourself. So both of us then do it where, and bear in mind, like our kids are 12 and eight. We're kind of like looking down at our sheets, thinking of who we've eliminated from our investigation. And we're like, but have, have we, <laughs> did I just, what? Like we're trying to double Basically, guess everything. You'll know when the Jameson family are playing Cluedo because Natalie sets up a mobile <laughs> incident room just outside of Croydon and there's wanted posters on every lamppost for Professor Plum. <laughs> That's how yeah, it's it's a lot of fun though. It's a lot of fun. I'd recommend it if you're not reading and enjoying things, other things we've been talking about. Better resource than most actual crime investigations. <laughs> if you're gonna do something, Phil, do it well. <laughs> Which just leaves me to say that it would be great if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, if you could rate and review it if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just because it really helps the algorithms and everything do their thing and um let other people discover bestsellers as well Mm. so yeah you just have to kind of click and say if you liked it give a star rating out of five up to you but preferably high and leave us a comment as well that'd be great five stars this is ace we'll do the job that's enough that's enough to manipulate the algorithm that's all we're looking to do let's be transparent about it and also tell you what surprised me over the weekend i got tweeted by um a colleague of mine in northern ireland uh peter Mm. who's been on the, the radio program that I do reporting all things Northern Ireland. And um, he was, he just discovered season one. So it's right. amazing. Yeah, and, and said, sorry for being late to the party. And I'm like, listen, dude, the party's got no end on it. Hopefully. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. you can never be late to bestsellers. Mm-mm. So yeah, spread the word, tell five of your friends. And uh, it's always nice when we hear from you then, if you've discovered it and you've liked it and uh, there's some brilliant authors in season one to go back to and some equally brilliant writers in season two as well correct and i am on twitter i don't really do instagram but on twitter i'm at nat underscore jameson j-a-m-i-e-s-o-n and you are phil williams done I'm the real slim shady i mean i don't know how i managed to bag that i don't know how because there are quite a few I, I, I sometimes there's a guy who have we have i told you this already there's an investigative so. journalist in america or australia i can't remember which and he constantly wins awards for his hard-hitting investigations and i sometimes get his praise bleed through into my feed and oh. i can't take it now i can't i can't go thanks very much i have to go and i think you mean the other phil williams but yeah oh yeah okay, meanwhile he's, he's getting tweets coming <laughs> when you stop banging on about that podcast <laughs> there's a soap actress in the uk who's also called natalie jameson and occasionally, right? yeah occasionally i get stuff for that as well What's she in? Do we know? I feel bad because I don't watch it. I want to, It's either Emmerdale or Hollyoaks. Oh, wow. Have you ever fancied being in a soap? You've reported on loads of them, haven't you? Yeah. Uh... I couldn't learn the lines. That would stop me. I'd be panicking that I'd memorise the lines properly. Emmerdale. Um, right. She's in Emmerdale. Yeah, I think I'll give it a crack. I'll give it a go. Why not? I quite like try and get her on. Don't you think we should try and get her on as a bonus guest? <laughs> I think it'd be really weird. Natalie Jameson. Natalie Jameson, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
let's, let's not do that. Um, let's uh, stick to what we do best. Well, hopefully something that we do well anyway. Right, go read a book or something and we'll see you next time. And if you want to get in touch with us, it's bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com to drop us an email. See you next time. Mm-hmm.